Open up your Bible if you have one. Luke chapter 13 is where we are. If you don't uh, have a Bible this morning, raise your hand and one of these handsome gentlemen will get you a Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. It's our gift to you. And um, if you know someone that you'd want to give it away to, a neighbor, somebody you're going to be at a Super Bowl party with this afternoon, gosh, uh, what better Super Bowl uh, little party favor than a Bible? That's, that's it. They thought you were going to bring nachos. You brought the Word of God. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, we're in Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let me read it, pray, and we will uh, dive in. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, in the context, about the Galileans whose blood... Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. God, honestly, it's so refreshing. (laughs) It's so refreshing to open your word and let you speak. I think of how often we would probably run from texts like these. And a lot of churches even would avoid texts like these. On the surface of it, it doesn't seem happy. It seems like it's not going to send us all home skipping and jumping for joy. But God, you touch in your word on the things that matter most. Far be it from us to decide what we need to hear and what we don't. If you have spoken, we want to attend to it. And so, God, the call this morning is to repent or perish. The call this morning is to take seriously the weight of our sin and the wrath of God against it. And I pray that you would use our time in your word, to bring about just that. For some, in a fresh way in our hearts, for others, perhaps for the first time. I do feel a bit weak this morning, God, and I pray for your strength. I feel as I come to your word myself in need of encouragement from you as well. Would you meet us this morning? Would you feed us? Would you help us? For your glory and our good. Amen. Um, I know sometimes you read uh, uh, text and it goes quickly, but if you notice, this is another heavy one. And um, I actually have quite a long history with this text. Uh, oftentimes when tragedy strikes, whether you know in the nation or out in the world or perhaps even among loved ones or friends. Um, This is one of the places 
that I have turned to get guidance. One of the places that I have taken people even to try to help us uh, interpret and understand what is going on. In fact, the first time I really engaged these five verses in a sermon, I remember it was immediately following um, that shooting at Virginia Tech, where I think 33 students were killed by uh, one of the kids who just went ballistic. Um, at the time, I think it was, I think it was the most deadliest, not just school shooting, it still remains that. I think one of the most, uh, one, the most deadly um, mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history. Since then, sadly, it's been surpassed by others. But because it was a college campus that this took place um, at, and because I was college pastor at the time, naturally I thought, my goodness, I can't just keep kind of going on with whatever series I'm in. We've got to step back and talk about this. Kids are... Are, 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 are reading in the, the news or watching, you know, on the TV and they're struggling. And so where am I going to go to try to make sense of that sort of a tragedy? Well, Luke 13, 1 through 5. Luke 13, 1 through 5. I found that these sort of uh, catastrophes can often be disorienting. They kind of turn our worlds upside down, at least for a while. And we're kind of spinning. I don't know which way is up or down. I don't know how to interpret this. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know where God is in it. I don't know what God is saying in it, if He's saying anything at all. And so I think there is, in fact, no greater place to go than where we are this morning for those sorts of things. Um, Because really, if you look closely, there are two horrific events outlined here. And Jesus tells us what we ought to do and how we ought to think about them. The first uh, event is discussed there in verses one through three. It has what you might say more of a human cause. Um, Galilean Jews were offering sacrifices to Yahweh at the temple, it would seem. Perhaps scholars think at like the time of the Passover or something. And for whatever reason, lost to history, we don't know why. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea at the time for Rome, uh, says these dudes got to die. Some crime they committed politically, we're not quite sure, but all we know is it it was urgent enough for the soldiers to rush in on these Galileans in the midst of their offering of sacrifices. So much so that what we read is that the blood of the Galilean Jews here mingles with the blood of their sacrifices. They just slaughtered them mercilessly in this place. It'd be like, it'd be like as if the kind of cops all of a sudden stormed down the door here. And just start railing on us in the midst of our worship, in the midst of our service. Now, sadly, that's not too far off of a possibility for many who gather, I imagine, on Sundays like these around the world. But something like that is what is taking place in this text as Jesus is discussing these sort of tragic events. But there's another event that he outlines for us, and Jesus now actually brings this one up in verses 4 through 5. This one has more of a natural, or you could say accidental, perhaps, uh, cause to it, where it just seems like this tower, for whatever reason, structurally kind of gave way and fell, killing 18 people. 
They think it may have been a tower connected to the pool of Siloam near the wall of the temple or something like that. And uh, it just fell on what would seem to be 18 people kind of walking by below. Daddy kisses his wife, his kids, goodbye in the morning, heading out to work, not to return. Just a fluke. A building fell and he's gone. It's tragic. As I thought more about these two events that Jesus gives us, it's kind of interesting because really these two events, you could kind of blow them out into the two basic categories that anything we're going to see in the news or even deal with personally or watching in the, you know, in the neighborhoods, any of the sort of tragic stuff that happens can fit into one of these two categories, right? Either it's caused by human evil of some sort, Or it's kind of this natural, accidental, unintentional, man, it's just hard kind of stuff. So human evil, I mean, of course, you might think of events like the the falling of the Twin Towers where Islamic terrorists, right, hijacked the planes, they're flying, who doesn't remember where they were when they saw that being rolled over and over again on the news? And some 2,500 people killed But even more than that, like the spirit of the American people just sucked out from us. Evil, right? Or perhaps more recently when a lone gunman from a distant window in a hotel just starts mowing down, you know, a mob of, you know, music, music fans at a, at a festival in Las Vegas. But then other tragedies, right, come in as a result of unintentional or natural processes. Some of the big ones you might think of, like you remember when that earthquake was set off out in the Indian Ocean and and this thing kind of unleashes a series of tsunamis that I looked and it was just like, couldn't even believe it, kill over 225,000 people in 14 different countries. You remember that? It's insane. Or... Uh, surely you haven't forgotten, although it's amazing how we kind of move on in our news cycle world. Paradise turned hell <laughs> as perhaps a spark from, uh, I guess it's still under investigation, but perhaps a downed power line, just spark and the winds just right, hot and roaring, just push the fire along to such a degree that the entire town is destroyed. And along with it, at least 86 people, and at least from what I saw, some still haven't even been found or identified. It's just natural, fire, accident, tower fell, spark. In one way or another, these sorts of tragedies always call for some sort of response from us. And... What I realize is that we need help. We need help thinking about how are we to interpret? How are we to respond? And this text kind of offers that help for us. Jesus is going to help us understand perhaps what we should do with what we see in the headlines. But one of the things that I actually want to do, I want to step back for a moment and just consider the various possible kind of responses we have 
to these sort of sufferings and tragedies in our lives. And we'll kind of make our way back towards this text and towards the, the proper response that Jesus uh, gives us here. So I've got five for you. Uh, I'll try to go quickly through the first three uh, because it's the latter two that will get us really into our text for this morning. But I thought it might be helpful to consider some of these. Response number one. First option when tragedy strikes and the world seems to be in chaos, you just get a taste of the brokenness of this place. First option, denial. Denial. This whole concept, even for the sermon and thinking about the way we respond to tragic events and things, um, actually was sparked for me by a time I had this last week reading with my daughters before bed. Okay, Um, I'm going to look like a bad parent here, (laughs) but full disclosure, uh, we were reading a book that by all accounts, it looked like a kid's book. Okay, it's got illustrations. It even came recommended to us. We're like, oh, this is a kid's book. And we had gotten it for them for Christmas. We were excited to read it. We hadn't read it yet. Like, let's do this tonight. I pull out this book. We start reading In just a few pages, I'm going, oh, no, we're about to go pretty deep into some tough stuff. Like this is like we're like graphic novel status, like we're going into some deep things here. And I'm a little concerned how this is going to go with my daughters. I don't try to hide reality from my kids, but you recognize that there are some things they may or may not be ready to take in. And so we keep reading, and it gets tough, and I keep hoping it's going to end well. Like So basically, long and short of it, this little boy, his dad left his mom and left him, and his mom's like crying in the room, kind of aban- like almost emotionally absent, though she's present, and he's kind of got to figure out how to be a man, and all he's longing for, kind of giving this window into his heart, is for his dad to come back. And I turn the page, and his dad comes back. And my daughters are going, yes, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And then it gets worse. Like, glass shatters, and then he runs out, and the boy's crying. There's a Jesus figure, okay, who, who kind of comes and, 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 and comforts the boy. And it brings up important truths that this world doesn't always work out the way that you want it, but Jesus is there. And it, it led to some great conversations, uh, actually, in bed after we read. But I'll tell you, my daughter's, one of my daughter's initial response, she starts bawling. And she goes, I never want to read this story again. <laughs> and I said, I get it. I don't either. <laughs> but... You see what's happening there? Now, I, I understand. This is a, this is a kid. So I'm not trying to say she's in the wrong or anything like that. Because I, I get it. Kids are developmentally in different places or whatever. But what I realized as I thought about this is this is what we do as adults. We do this. Like we come to face really hard broken stuff. We see it. It hurts. It doesn't feel right. We don't like it. And so what do we do? I don't want to read this story again. So instead of watching the news, let's turn on the Hallmark Channel. Let's watch those, you know, movies that always end well. 
let's put up in our house those Thomas Kincaid paintings where it's like perpetually Christmas and like there's always a turkey in the oven and your neighbors actually carol and there's like this glow on everything you've seen those babies I like them don't get me wrong but they they don't depict the world as it is they depict the world as we wish it would be but not as it is so we're prone to this sort of denial thing where we see it but we don't want to see it and so we have these ways of denying whether that means, you know, you think of the classic things like numbing the pain with drugs and alcohol, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's be real. That's probably not even the main issue. A lot of times what it is, is we just distract ourselves away with lesser, more superficial pursuits. I don't want to think about the fact that that tower fell or that, that Caesar did that to them or that they're, you know, that gunman, that this place is broken. I'll just kind of distract myself with this. We may even, and I hate to say it on Super Bowl Sunday, try to distract ourselves away from reality by watching football. Just entering into these little superficial subplots and getting all amped up like it's real war, like it's reality, but it's not. If you see it for what it is, it's fine. But if it becomes too important, it's like this distraction away from real life where people are really dying, really losing, and there's really need for a hero and hope and a savior. It's brokenness. We don't want to face it. Denial, option number one. Option number two for our response to these sorts of tragedies and brokenness in the world, triumphalism. If you know what I mean by that, it's just this excessive arrogance or this excessive kind of sense that we will win. We'll get it. Positive optimism. I can do it. Triumphalism. Uh, Megan and I sometimes uh, enjoy watching those medical kind of dramas, medical shows. Depends on what they are. Um, some are better than others. But um, one of the things that you notice, uh, especially with the surgeons, right, is that they start to kind of get this God complex about them. Like they start to connect the dots and go, oh, that person was dying. They came in, rolled them in on my table. My hands, with my scalpel, fixed them. They were dying, now they live. i got power over death, baby. I haven't seen the movie, but I came across a quote from um, the movie Malice, where Alec Baldwin's character is a surgeon in it, and he's reflecting on the sort of power that he feels he has, and he says this, just listen. When someone goes into that chapel... And they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock. Who do you think they're praying to? You ask me if I have a God complex, let me tell you something. I am God. You see, he's just connecting the dots. They're praying for something to happen to God out there. I'm the one who's doing it. I am God. Power over death itself. Now, 
Again, I don't think that there are many people walking around that would just say it as starkly as that. And yet, there is this sort of Tower of Babel mentality in us that we're just going to build our way back up to immortality. We're going to work this thing out. We can make a name for ourselves. We can get it done. We somehow think that death may come for others, but if it ever dared to come for us, we would triumph over it. It wouldn't take us down. We'll use our money, our science, our intellect, our technology. We will figure it out. I've told you, I think in sermons past, um, I remember reading this magazine on kind of guys in Silicon Valley and how they're trying to cheat death, okay? You remember, perhaps, this was a long time ago, so I won't be offended if you don't, but uh, there are there are guys pouring in, in this area pouring a lot of their cash and a lot of their time and a lot of their energy and intellect into companies like uh, there's one called Ambrosia. Okay, their whole thing is hey here's what we're going to do we're going to take uh, blood from young people and then we're going to get those blood transfusions into old people and we're going to we're going to use that blood to help these old people continue to live. That's the concept. Or there's another one um, called Alcor. This company, it's even more crazy. Here's the idea. When you die, we're going to keep your brain, if you pay us enough, in a vat of like goo that will then, we assume, because uh, things are evolving, uh, we will soon be able to, given technological advances, uh, revive that brain, attach it to an avatar, and you will be immortal. You keep on living. Guys dumping tons of cash. Brilliant people. Sounds ridiculous, but this is what they're doing. The triumphalist mentality is we are ever evolving. We are getting better. Soon and very soon we will overcome all that ills the human race, not the least of which is death itself. So they're not scared to look at death and the brokenness of this place, there's actually a sort of snickering arrogance when they look at it. Oh, we'll fix it. We could take it. We got it. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it's not going to happen. At least not in that way. This doesn't mean we don't seek to make medical advancements. It doesn't mean we don't seek to improve our technology or things like that. What it does mean is that try as we may, We will never be God. We will always be man. And we will not only just be man, we will be sinners under the curse of God. And no amount of money or brains or technology will save you from that. Jesus can. Option number three when it comes to responding to tragic events that occur around us. Um, Despair. So we've seen denial, we've seen triumphalism. Now we need to go to the opposite extreme with despair. Some people look and go, bring it on, we will take it. Other people look and go, gosh darn it, I'm done! I tap out! I hate this place! I'm sick of the headlines. I keep seeing it. They see it clear-eyed and they go, you know what? If we're honest, if we're intellectually honest, there is no hope. Let's get real. 
place is so broken. How many more mass murders do we need to read about? How many more natural disasters need to occur before we finally just tap the floor and say, I'm done. This place is horrible. Let's own it. It's a sort of nihilistic sense of despair that can kind of settle in. They're not trying to deny it anymore. They're not naively thinking they can somehow conquer it. They just acquiesce and say, what's the point of this? Why even try anymore? The author of Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with the book, is clearly teetering on the edge of this sort of despair as he considers life under the sun. That's why he opens the book the way that he does. And I wanted to read you a few of these lines from uh, the start, kind of the opening poem that he gives. It kind of sets up the themes he'll discuss for the rest of the book. But Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 2, and I'll kind of skip around. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What's the point of this? He's being honest he's at least facing the brokenness he's facing the reality that we labor to gain only to lose generations come and generations go that what we do labor to 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 kind of make and and, and do for ourselves and no one's even going to remember it we live and we die and then it's gone and we're gone He's wrestling with the meaning of life in the face of death. And uh, the author of Ecclesiastes certainly is not the first poet to engage in this sort of thing. Many poets after him came and and said, uh, sometimes even more pointedly, the same sorts of things as they look clear-eyed at the broken world around them, try to make sense of it. Let me read you a few This is from Edmund Vance Cook. He says this, This life's a hollow bubble, don't you know? Just a painted piece of trouble, don't you know? We come to earth to cry, we grow older and we sigh. Older still and then we die, don't you know? This is from James Montague's poem, No Hope. He writes this, "'Twas ever thus since childhood's hour, I never had a joy." That some malign superior power did not before long destroy. To gain some joy from this I try, though life is hard and rough. Yet I suppose that I shall die if I live long enough. It's almost kind of eerily comical, his last line there. I know I'm going to die if I live long enough. But the kind of insinuation... The implication that flows from that is not just that we live and then we die, but perhaps even we live to die. <laughs> Life is a slow, painful, sometimes abrupt dying. What's the point? 
despair kind of settles in at that point. And I wonder if this has been your response, if you've ever felt this way, if over the years of reading the headlines or seeing friends and family suffer or perhaps even dealing with suffering yourself, you've just kind of thrown in the towel. You've tapped out. I don't see the point. I'm not going to deny it and put on the, the happy movies or play the video games or get caught up in my work. Keep trying to find meaning somewhere, not think about what's happening out there. I'm not going to deny it, and I've given up thinking I can beat it because I keep climbing up just to fall back down, and I watch others doing the same thing. I'm just kind of over it. I'm kind of done. Despair. Like again, the author of Ecclesiastes says, chapter 2, verse 20, I turned about and I gave up my heart to despair. I'm tired of it. This response, though it claims to face reality honestly and without flinching, is still not looking at the full picture. And we we catch that. We get that if we, again, look. So it's going to claim to be, everybody be honest. This life is broken. There's no fixing it. Come on. Our position is the only one. Despair. (laughs) But it's not the full picture, is it? And they're not as clear-eyed as I've been saying that they are, that they think they are. Because woven alongside the tragedy, woven alongside the brokenness, is beauty. In life, there's an indication of hope. More on that in a moment. Response number four. When it comes to facing tragedy, here's another uh, technique we can have. And now we start to move towards our text. This is what I would call comparison, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. Um, Look back at at Luke 13. I want you to make note of how this is in in play here. Jesus says this to the, the crowd that's around. He says, do you think that these Galileans, this is verse 2, the latter part, do you think that these Galileans were worse, there's the comparison, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, he says. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders? Then all the others who lived in Jerusalem, no, he says. The comparison game is not going to work. What is he doing here? He's, he's pushing back on yet another kind of uh, uh, improper response to the tragic events that take place in the world around us. What I'm calling here comparison. It's... Um, 
It was something that was prevalent back in Jesus' day, and it's, I don't necessarily think, any less prevalent in our day. But it's this idea that if bad things are happening to you or to them, those people out there, if bad stuff is happening, it's because they've done bad things. And God is just giving them their due. They deserve that in one way or another. And hence, comparison, they are worse sinners, must be, than me. Look what I'm enjoying over here. It hasn't come for me. Man, the fire was ripping through the neighborhood and it stopped in my house. Why? Because I prayed this morning. And I read my Bible every day. Fires just stop when they get to 549 Jesse James Drive. I'm not as bad a sinner as those around me that have suffering in their lives. What happens is we take what was intended, as we shall soon see, to be a warning from God to us. And we actually, in a sort of twisted sort of way, we actually kind of turn it into an opportunity for self-congratulating. Whew! Didn't happen to me. Wonder why that happened to you. Hmm. Sorry about that. That's too bad. I don't think God would ever do that to me. Now, I do understand, and you gotta be fair to people that hold this position or that would respond in this way. For goodness sake, biblically, I can understand why, why we might be prone to think this. And I think sometimes that is a legitimate, uh, underneath the surface, legitimate, uh, probably logic. And yet Jesus is saying, don't even go there, please. There's something else I want you to get. But there is a question that emerges in all of this, I think, and it really is, is something like this. In, in the tragedies and stuff, is God bringing particular judgments upon particular people because they've committed particular sins? Is that what's happening? That's the sort of question that we have to wrestle with here for a moment. Can we draw a direct line from, from, from sin to suffering? From I, uh, God let a bad thing happen to me to I must have done something bad to him. Is it always this direct line? Can we draw that sort of a line? Well, if you've been around here long enough, you probably know how I'm going to answer it. Yes and no. The scriptures are never black and white, though we want them to be, because we're more comfortable with that. There's always nuance, and let me show you both sides of this. At times, yes, a particular judgment seems to be correspondent to a particular sin. Let me just rattle off some examples so you can see this. Adam and Eve, sin in the garden, and what happens? Hey, listen, because of that, the judgment of God befalls them. They are thrust out of Eden and away from His presence. Or you remember back in Noah's day, when God like repents for making man, even. It's like this tragic moment there in Genesis 6. And He brings the floodwaters of judgment on the earth. Why? Because he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Particular sins, particular judgment. Direct line. Moses, this was another tragic one. Moses is an all-star. Okay, we love the guy. 
But man, he has a moment of direct disobedience out there in the wilderness after faithfully walking with this ragamuffin group that you just want to spring up for 40 years or whatever it was. And then he gets to the end of this. And God says, hey, I want you to speak to the rock. Don't strike it this time. Speak to it and water will flow. And he goes, I'm so angry. Just let me at it. And God goes, I'm sorry. But because of that particular offense, there is going to be particular consequences. You will see the promised land, but you will not lay a foot in that soil. Dead. Or you think of David and what Tolu has been looking at with us and looked at last week and his shenanigans with Bathsheba. And then Nathan the prophet shows up and what does he say? Because you've done this thing, the child in Bathsheba's womb is not going to make it. Particular sin, particular judgment. And it carries on into the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter, but they're lying to the Holy Spirit. So what happens? Oh, no big deal. He's a God of grace. No, they drop dead. (laughs) Judgment right there. It's crazy. Or King Herod, as they go, the voice of a God, not of a man. And he goes, dang straight. That's right. Drops dead. I just say dang straight in a sermon. Is that all right? I heard you. I, I always got to look at Paul because if he's laughing, I know I probably said something I shouldn't have. <laughs> he just drops dead, we're told. An angel strikes him down in that moment. Or the Corinthian church, they're eating and drinking the, the Lord's Supper in an improper way. We're told that some are getting drunk and they're kind of gluttons and taking this as a big meal and to the neglect of others and things. It's just because of that, Paul says, some of you are sick and dying. Judgment of God is on you for particular sins. So, listen. Yes, that logic can be biblically valid. Absolutely. Particular sins of particular people bringing particular judgments, direct line, that can be the case sometimes. Yes, but no, not always the case by any stretch. It is not always so clear. This, of course, one of the classic examples was uh, Job's friend's big mistake, right? The big mistake from Job's friends was to imagine, to assume that the suffering that came upon him was a result of his particular sinfulness. One of his friends comes in and he just says, listen, we all know that you reap what you sow. So if this is what you're reaping, I'm just saying, Job, what did you sow? The comparison game starts. Now, you've got to be worse than me. In fact, this same brother, his name is Eliphaz, says later in like his last speech, he just comes at Job with all that he's been thinking this whole time. And he says, is it for your fear of him, God, that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? In other words, you think it's because you're holy that God is doing this to you? He says, no, no, no. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. That is clear. Greater sinner than me. 
Because look at what's happening to you. And all of this could seem plausible were it not for the fact that as readers, we get the vantage point of God's very own conclusions regarding Job before the suffering even began. It wasn't, man, Job, how could you have done all of these things? I guess I'm going to have to punish you in judgment for that. It was, there is none like Job on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Those are God's words. Those are God's words about Job before the suffering. So no, no, these things have not come upon Job because of some particular sin he has sowed and now he must reap. It is because of some mysterious providence of God. We may wish it were not so, but what we come to find out is that God actually means greater blessing to Job and to come through him to others by way of this. At the end of it, it is Job interceding for his friends, not his friends interceding for him. Job blessing others. That's not always a direct line. It's not always clear and... It's the same sort of thing we see again in the New Testament, John 9, 1 through 3, where Jesus is going to combat this comparison motif once more, where he says this, or at least John writes this, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Somebody must have sinned if this man is blind. Either his parents or him. But there was particular sin that called for this particular judgment. Jesus' response. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Disciples, you have it wrong. There's actually some grace and glory in the midst of this suffering and you're about to see it. Not a direct line. Sometimes there's a lot more nuance to all of this and it's hard to understand. But what we have to see is that we often want to do this comparison thing that Jesus is pushing us up, pushing up against. We often, when something happens to a person or some suffering, particularly if it's maybe an enemy of ours, an opponent, or even a nation we don't like, or uh, you know people that live over in that state or that part of our state that we don't like, this sort of thing happens. We kind of go, hmm, that's right. Did you see what sort of bill they just passed over there? I mean, my county isn't passing those things. Mm-hmm. God's judgment's coming down. We start to do that sort of thing. We start to play those sorts of games. And we forget the nuances involved in all of this. And we forget what God is really wanting us to do, which we'll see in just a moment. Let me say one final thing on this, because I know that this gets personal too. Not just in the way that we view other people's tragedies and the stuff that happens out in the world, but the way that tragedies touch us personally. The way that hardships come on us. I think if we're honest, we all kind of have that innate sense that, okay, if I'm good, God's going to do good. If I'm bad, uh, God's going to give bad. So if I sin the night before, I'm waiting for his shoe to fall the next day. Right? 
And maybe you have, you know, dreams or desires and you just hit roadblock after roadblock. Or maybe you've been hoping for X, Y, and Z and it just doesn't seem to happen. In fact, things are getting worse. And you, it, it, you know what happens when you're on your bed at night, right? Or maybe not even, or maybe just in the middle of it. You just got to scream out sometimes, God, what did I do? Why are you doing this to me? Right? Like, what is it? I'm sure I messed up. Fine, you win. What is it? And we get kind of caught up in this direct line mentality. And we assume that, ah, it must be some particular sin and I've got to figure out what it is or the punishment won't stop. Now sometimes, as we've seen biblically, that can be the case, okay? It might be the case. But here's what I want to reassure you with. When, if it is the case, God is not trying to hide the cause of his discipline or the, the sin, the particular sin he's calling out. God is not interested in kind of hiding. You better figure it out. I've already told you, but you weren't listening. Now it's on you. No. I want you to think about God with Israel. When we're, I think we're going to come to a text about this pretty soon. But he just says, I sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to you. And you killed and killed and killed and killed and killed them all. You would not listen. Though I said clearly again and again what your sin was. And why judgment was going to come if you don't turn. Do you understand? He's clear. If it's a direct line, he's clear. Or he sends Paul to the Corinthians and say, want to know why people are sick and dying? Here's why. So I'm telling you, if you open up to God and you say, God, life is hard. Am I supposed to understand this as a Job sort of thing or that blind man and John sort of thing? Like, like Paul would say, through many sufferings we, and tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Is this just time for me to trust or is it time for me to repent? I need to know what's going on. You just open up and say, show me my sin. Like Psalm 139. David, at the end, you remember this? Search me, O oh God. I love this. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If you can get on your knees and say that with your heart, God will show you. And if he doesn't convict you of this or that particular thing, let me tell you something. Just press into Jesus and let him strengthen you. And know that he's with you in the suffering. And that sometimes... Like Job or like that blind man in John. He has a mysterious providence for you. And a grace and an even greater blessing in and through the suffering. It's not always a direct line. Okay? You hear that? Alright. That was parentheses. Back to the task at hand. Response number five. Comparison. Don't play that game. Now we move to the final um, response or option that we have. And here we see uh, Jesus is pointing us to uh, the proper one. When we are looking at the sufferings of this world and the tragedies that befall us um, and others, what we realize is that uh, we are not supposed to kind of deny these things. We're not supposed to get triumphalistic with it. We're not supposed to kind of lose all hope and give in to despair. We're not supposed to compare and act like there must be much worse than us. Instead, what does he say? He gives us what we're supposed to do in verse 3 and verse 5. He repeats it twice in case we miss it the first time. Unless you 
repent, you will likewise perish. Here's what he says. Stop it with the comparison. Stop thinking that you're better. This is an opportunity for self-evaluation, not self-congratulating. This is an opportunity to look in and go, wow, this world is broken. Where do I stand with a holy God? Because if I'm not right with him today, if I am not right with him, it will not go right with me in the end. That is true. Judgment is coming. I need to get right. It's not just them out there somewhere. It's coming for the world. And we all stand under that curse. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. The sinners deserving of his wrath. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We may look at these words of Jesus and say, gosh, that sure seems to be lacking compassion. This was a very difficult situation, and you just use it as an opportunity to call for repentance and talk about sin. What about comforting those that lost their love? All these Listen, of course Jesus does, but he's going actually after the deepest expression of compassion of all. He's saying, listen, I don't want those sorts of things, the judgment of God, to come for you. Repent or you too will perish. Jesus is saying, when tragedy strikes others, don't waste your time trying to tease out why this or that is happening to them and not to you. Instead, let it be an opportunity for you to consider where you are with God. The call to repent is at once both a threat and an invitation. I think Tolu said as much last week, actually. But I want you to hear this again. The call to repent is at once both a threat and an invitation. It is a warning of impending judgment, no doubt. But it is, an, but it is also an offer of free, unmerited Grace, don't you see, it is not just a harsh word. It is a loving, compassionate word that Jesus gives us in the face of the brokenness of this world under the curse of God. He is saying flee and where do you flee to? We know where to run to. Him. The call to repent is an offer. An invitation to run to Jesus. Because here's what we know. Jesus will in fact shelter us from the judgment we deserve by taking that judgment upon himself. Consider this with me. Jesus too. I mean, he's headed towards the cross. We read in Luke 9, his eyes are towards Jerusalem. That's where he's going. He knows it. And he's saying, come follow me and watch. Judgment is coming for me. Just like Pontius Pilate stormed into the temple or whatever and put to death these brothers offering sacrifice, so too 
Pontius Pilate would put Christ to death on that cross only His blood wouldn't merely mingle with the blood of the sacrifices. His blood would be the blood of the sacrifice. The only sacrifice that could take away sin. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Or to come at it another way, Jesus there on the cross is standing, as it were, under the tower, the trembling tower of God's holy wrath, and the full weight of it will fall on him. And here's the crazy thing. Everyone around the cross is going to do exactly what Job's friends were doing. Ah, If it's coming upon him, it must be that God's abandoned him. It must be because of all the sin that we pointed out all along the way. We were right. Where is your God now? Isaiah would put it like this in Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Did you hear that? We thought he was getting what he deserved because he was a worse sinner than us. But the tragic irony is, and Isaiah won't let us miss it, we are not looking at what he deserves as he hanged there lifeless on the cross. We are looking, brothers and sisters, at what we deserve and what he is taking for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for Our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Do you you hear this? I am not looking at what he deserves. I am looking at what I deserve. What he is willing to take for me freely in grace. It's my sin, my transgression, my sorrow. There should be my wounds, but they're His so that He could give me His peace with God. So the call to repent or perish sounds harsh on the surface of it. No doubt it is. It is a warning. It is a threat. But it is also an invitation As you see the brokenness of this world in labor pains and the end is near and judgment is coming, he is saying flee to the only true refuge. It's not a football game where you can just kind of doze off and all for a few hours feel like the world is a happy place. It's not going to be found in your medicine or your education. You're not going to beat this. It's him. So here's the amazing thing about all of this, and this is where I'll leave you. Because of Jesus, when tragedy strikes our nation or our neighborhood, when it comes close to home, family, friends, even ourselves, we don't have to try to kind of deny it. We don't have to go to these things and try to hide. We can face it. We can look at it. We can consider it. And when we consider it, when we face it, we don't get all triumphalist anymore. But in fact, we're humbled by it. 
We can be broken by it. We should take it seriously. We should have a healthy fear of all that's going on and go, wow, we can't stop this. But we don't go the way of despair in those moments. That's not our option either. Ah, there's no hope. I face it. I see it. I know I've been humbled by it. Now I just feel like there's no hope. No, we know that a door of hope has been opened, that Jesus didn't just stay dead on the cross, that he rose from the dead victorious. He did beat death. And there is hope and a way of salvation, a way of redemption for the problems that face this world. And we know that the way we get right with Jesus and this God is not by being better than the next. Trying to somehow win His favor by doing a few good things. We know it's by coming, falling on our face at the foot of the cross, saying, I need what you did for me. Taking shelter under His wings. So in other words, when tragedy strikes, we can repent. And run to the open arms of our Savior. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us in these moments to seriously consider our mortality and the curse of God that rests on this world. Because of sin. I pray you'd keep us from being a superficial people. A slap happy people. I pray that we would be a weighty people. That see reality for what it is. But that we would also be hopeful. Incredibly so. Because woven into reality is not just the curse, but the one who has removed the curse. And holds holds out that offer to us and to the world. We receive it afresh this morning, Jesus. And give thanks and praise to you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.